0: Welcome to Heels in the Courtroom, a podcast about successfully navigating law and life, featuring the women trial attorneys at the Simon Law Firm. Hi, everyone. I'm Liz from Heels in the Courtroom. We're all super busy with trial prep this week, so we're avoiding burnout and dropping one of our favorite previous episodes. Hope you enjoy it. We'll be back with a new episode next week. Hello, everybody, and welcome
1: back to another episode of Heels in the Courtroom. I am here today, Amy Gunn, with Liz Lenovey, Mary Simon, and Erica Slater. We are hoping you all are having a wonderful week. It's Wednesday, so we are in your feed to educate slash entertain. Today's topic is mediation. There are many things that go into making the decision about whether to mediate a case, It's important a strategic analysis to decide when to mediate. Personally, most of the folks here like it to be the defendant's idea to mediate. I usually don't like to approach my client to try to resolve the matter unless there's been at least one request, one reaching out to try to mediate the case. And even in those situations, I usually like to have the defense attorney let me know, is this something that you're asking for, that your client's asking for? Sometimes it's court-ordered. All those things go into it because what I think a lot of defense attorneys don't recognize is that we then have to have a conversation with our client that's not just about dollars and cents. It's about resolving the litigation. And oftentimes that includes so much emotion. It is not just deciding to agree to a number. And the idea of also just putting a number on someone's pain and suffering, a number on someone's harms and damages, is also very difficult. So before I reach out and have what oftentimes is a very stressful conversation with my client, I need to know that defendant is serious about paying serious money on the case. So Erica, let me ask you, when you have been approached to mediate and you believe the timing is right to go through with that mediation, how do you prepare your client for that?
2: I think the most important thing in preparing your client for mediation is to prepare them for it not to be successful. When we mediate cases, I'd say we're maybe batting 400 (laughs) in mediation, maybe 300 for successful mediations. But one thing I start with is I describe to them why it's an opportunity And of course, as you mentioned earlier, Amy, it's important that the defendant has asked for it. Or of course, if it's court ordered, that's something that, you know, we've always been looking towards. But I usually start by discussing how it's an opportunity, even if it's not successful, even if we don't settle at mediation, because we will always find out where the defendants are valuing the case and it will help guide our work going forward. Now, the way we Work up cases at our firm is that from day one we're always working them up for trial so we don't work up cases to get them in a position where we only want to settle them and we aren't doing the work that we would necessarily do for trial so it doesn't necessarily change the cadence of our work if a mediation is unsuccessful and we have a better indication that we're definitely going to trial but it does tell us a lot about the party's positions. And no matter what, I think it's important for the client to know that there's an opportunity to settle your case at mediation, and that only happens if it's their decision. And if it is not successful, then we will never be at a disadvantage, if you will. We will only have more information and be able to make more informed decisions about future negotiations as well.
1: I agree. These days, in the time of COVID, I have had in-person mediations, but also Zoom mediations. Mary, if we continue with social distancing and things like that in the foreseeable future... What do you think about Zoom mediations? Do you see them continuing? And do you think that they are as effective as an in-person mediation?
3: Well, it's interesting that you ask because I have two currently scheduled, but I have not yet participated in a Zoom mediation. And before I head into it, some of my concerns are something about just the pressure or feel of being in person at a mediation with everyone there carving time out of their day to travel to whatever location the mediation is going to be at. It just seems like there's going to be less of an incentive to settle the case.
1: I have had two Zoom mediations and two in-person mediations since May. I've had one in-person settle and one Zoom settle. Okay. The in-person one that settled was very traditional. It was still really not much changed because you're already in two separate rooms and you are sitting in the same room with your client. And Liz, we were together for that one. We just sat with our masks on across the table from each other, kind of like what we're doing today. And the other parties were in separate rooms anyway. And the mediator just kept his mask on and came in between. I don't know that COVID really is going to put an end to in-person mediations. I had a second in-person mediation where it was also very easy to socially distance. It just didn't settle. It didn't have anything to do with the the format of the mediation. Two Zoom mediations Eric and I had one in May and that was very early in the process. Our mediator the the format for it was a little mm-hmm. awkward. I I thought we would we would have to get on and then call our clients and then the mediator would pop back on. It just wasn't it was so early in the process; it wasn't uh, the format was not very conducive, I think, to really be, being able to sit and and sit down together.
2: Now I did learn how to be a switchboard operator. Very important. <laughs> that was skill. my role. Very in important that mediation. <laughs> Harken the, back to the fifties. The fourth
1: mediation was actually with the federal court, and this was delightful because it was in Virginia. And I guarantee if it were before COVID, I would have had to have gone to Virginia. And because it's federal court, they just have the resources to have the right format and program or whatever it is to open up different rooms. And they do have they did have a clerk and something would pop up. I stayed in the same quote unquote room with my clients. So there were two or three screens, then something would pop up and say the judge would like to enter your room and you would say, sure. Okay. And then the judge would pop on and then he would pop out and then go to the defendant's quote unquote room. And I thought that was incredibly effective. The case did settle. I don't know that I'm looking at it, you know, with rose colored glasses and in the, in the rear mirror because it settled. I just thought it was really an easy way to get things done. So I, I think there are ways to to do mediations in person, very safely But also with the right program, you could do it very easily by Zoom as
2: well. I have found as well that my impression of the defense side of virtual mediations may be a little bit more beneficial than the plaintiff side. One of the frustrations that we often have on the plaintiff side is when we go into a mediation, whether it's been represented to us beforehand or not, sometimes we find that all the players are the decision makers or the people who are giving authority during the mediation aren't in the room. And so quite frankly, since nobody has to be in a room on a virtual mediation, I think that roadblock is overcome more easily, or you have much less of an excuse to have not had everyone on board since, you know, you don't have to fly in the senior claims adjuster from Ohio or whatever it is. And now there's really no excuse for that if you've gone through a virtual mediation. So that that is a benefit I see, depending on the type of case.
0: Well, that was uh, the mediation that Amy and I attended in person, a bit of a hybrid in that regard, because uh, the adjuster was on the East Coast and did attend by Zoom. And so she was technically there with us, just not in person. And it worked out. I thought, okay until we found out that there was some big storm on the East Coast and her Wi-Fi had been knocked out. Allegedly. (laughs) Allegedly. Right. And then it became much more difficult to uh, get this person on the phone to continue negotiations. But uh, did you
2: Google the weather? Be honest.
0: I did not. (laughs) I really wanted to trust these these uh, particular defense attorneys. That
2: mediation
1: was going pretty well, so we were okay. (laughs) Liz, um, on that, when you're in the room, in your little caucus room with your client, and the mediator comes back in with an offer from the defendant, you know, from the insurance company or whatever form they are participating, how do you react, if at all, when the mediator sets out that the next move?
0: I think it depends on what number the mediator comes back with. If it's something that's reasonable, I will say, okay, I'll ask the mediator their thoughts. Oftentimes if if they are a retired judge, I am particularly interested in, in knowing what they think about that offer. And then the mediator will step out of the room and then I will talk to my client about it. And I think that's a situation where if it's a reasonable offer, I don't necessarily want to have much of a reaction one way or the other. In my head, I'm thinking, okay, that's a good place to start. Now, where do we go from here? If it's a particularly low ball number, I think it does call for a reaction. And I think it calls for a reaction, not so much to signal to the mediator, because the mediator has enough experience that they know what we're doing, but it's more to signal to the client that I am here for you and we're not going to let these people in this other room bully you. And so in, in that situation, if it is a particularly low ball number that I think is an indication to me that this isn't going to get done today because they're not coming at this in good faith to begin with, especially if I think I've come with a good faith starting number myself, I want the client to know that it's OK if, if today doesn't work out and we're going to stand by you. And I also want to arm them and prepare them for the moment that we may need to just walk out.
1: I preach to my clients to have poker faces, and then I do not ever have a poker face. I'm terrible (laughs) at it. I am so reactionary when the mediator comes in and has a number, particularly if it's bad. And by bad, what we really mean is low or not hasn't really come up much. The stair steps are really small. And it's insulting. It, <laughs> it, it's always that first. And I even tell my clients, look, the first offer is going to be insulting. You are going to be insulted. Please know that that's the way it starts. They start low. We start high. The whole idea is to get someplace in the middle. I tell my clients, you know, just try to keep it together. And then like I said, I always lose it. And part though is, it's all real for me. I I do wear my heart on my sleeve. I work really hard not to be evident with my emotions. But sometimes I think it's okay to be myself in that emotional state. And particularly with a mediator that I know or already knows me. Because part of what we do, whether we're in the courtroom whether we're in the mediation room, whether we're in the deposition, is we perform and we advocate. And I can't separate the two. So if someone comes in and offers me 10 grand on my case that I know is worth a million dollars, look, I mean, come on, I'm insulted. I try not to. But at some point, I will say to the mediator, you know what, I'm sorry, this is rude. That's not in good faith. That's kind of our quote, in good faith. That's our obligation. If we're going to agree to mediate, we have to do so in good faith. And I will throw those out occasionally because I believe it, but also because I want the mediator to go back in that room and say, wow, you have pissed Amy Gunn off. <laughs> and maybe they don't care. Maybe they don't care. And that's okay with me. But if even if they care a little bit, that's okay with me. And it shows, Liz, to your point, that we're fighting hard for our clients, whether it's beginning, middle, end, whenever it is, it's part of our job. So I
2: I will always have a reaction. Also, I- when they come back with such low numbers, especially if it's well into the mediation, communicating that feeling of disrespect or wasting your time or the insulting nature of the way the other side is choosing to conduct the mediation, Is also, I think, important so the mediator knows that they need to send a message that with your next move, you are in the position where you need to be convincing them to stay if you want to participate in this process. And, you know, on both sides of cases, each party has their reasons for mediating, even if, you know, we've all been in mediations where you are have a million dollar case and you're offered 10,000 and it doesn't go really anywhere from there. And maybe their point was to send you a message about how they feel about your case. And that's fine. And if you know your case and stick to your guns, you've also given them really important information. Amy, what do you think is one of the most important things to discuss with your client prior to mediation?
1: It is important to prepare your client when the call for mediation occurs. And I believe it's an actual legitimate, let's try to resolve this. That forces us to sit down and have a discussion with my client about making a demand. So the defendant says, I want to mediate. Can you send me a demand? So that's our that's our top, our first number, our, our high number, because we have to obviously negotiate down from there. But you have to say to your client, look, I'm going to start at four, but that's not what they're going to pay. So you have to set those expectations that it's, that's never what they're going to pay. It's, it's like buying a home. Here's the cost. Here's what you want to pay. It's going to get compressed into a number that fits everybody, that everybody is unhappy with. That's what a compromise is. No one is happy, but it is resolved. Set them up that way. Then they're, they're prepared for the f- first or second or you know, insulting offers. And then you have the reaction, talk to the mediator. You start actually getting somewhere, hopefully. And if you don't, that's when you walk. Or at least have a heart-to-heart with the mediator where you say, look, where's this going? Am I wasting my time or am are you wasting your time? Let's see what we can do. And each and every time that number comes in, I sit with my client and I find out what that net amount is in her pocket. Because fees, expenses, liens... You don't want to have a million dollar offer and have your client think they're getting a million dollars. I start pulling out the calculator and doing those numbers so they know exactly what they're going to get or the best case and the worst case scenario, because sometimes liens have to be dealt with later. I tell my clients this, the only time today that you have to make a firm actual decision is when that mediator comes in the door and says, Amy, this is it. This is all the money they have. They don't have any more. They're not making any more phone calls. You need to take this or leave this. That's when I smile and I say, thanks, judge, or whoever. I'll get back to you. I sit down with my client. We run the actual numbers. And that's when I look to my client and I say, okay, we've been doing this for two years. I've told you all along I'm going to be making a lot of these decisions. This is your decision. You have to make this decision whether we sell this case and for how much is your decision. And that's when those two years of working together, communicating and building trust really counts because they almost always look at me and say, what do you think? And I have to know that they trust me when I give them my answer, whether it's yes or no. And if I've done my job right up to that point, then it's a good it's a good day. And they trust me whether it's yes or no. And we're all very contented with that. I think I have learned that patience is usually rewarded. And this is what I tell my client when we get there. It's going to be a long day. It's going to be a long day. We can't get caught up in any particular move. If we can sit through this and let the other side work through their details. Sometimes there's two defendants and they have to coordinate. Sometimes the mediator is going to gather money from both of those before he or she comes back to you. If we can be patient, it usually pays off. And that has been my experience. But Mary, I'm sure you have been in situations where you've been patient all day long, it's just not
3: gonna work. When do you decide to call it quits? If I'm sitting in a room with my client and you know we've done all the prep work, our client knows what to expect with an initial number. We've gotten over the initial insult. We're sitting there. We're trying to be patient. And the next number that comes back, is it another insult? What I have done before with other attorneys in this office as well is to say, look, they can put X amount on the table. They have 20 minutes to do it. And if they don't at least put that baseline on the table, we're gone. And at that point, it's it seems like the longest 20 minutes of your life or whatever right. time period and usually at minute you know 19 the number comes back and and you and you understand okay they don't want us to leave we'll bite a little bit longer and
2: and you've kind of called their bluff at that point
3: right and it and it just stops you from waiting 4 hours to get another small increase cuz you no one's there to do that and at that point if you're moving that slowly you know it's not going to get done So my experience at mediations is you have already talked to your client so much about what they expect and what you expect to get out of the mediation that if it's been a couple hours and there's little to no movement to get to what you have in mind as the goal for your client, you can say you're going to leave. And there's no point in staying there for God knows how long into the afternoon or even evening, because you just know at the pace you're going, it's never going to happen. So I do think that it's important to make a couple moves in good faith. And when you feel that you've done that at a pace that you're moving towards your goal, but you're not getting that reciprocated, it is completely fine to tell your client, my recommendation to you is that we just leave. And obviously you have the opportunity to hear out the mediator, but the mediator at that point already knows where your head's at, what has already aggravated you, that your client is already disappointed in the process. And you're probably not even in a good headspace to try to continue negotiating at that point.
1: I agree. Then the next question just becomes, do you say goodbye or do you just walk out? And I, I will always say goodbye. I will force myself (laughs) to go in there and (laughs) smile and thank them and appreciate it because it also goes along with, you're not bothering me. I don't want to settle this case anyway. I'd rather try it. Liz, if, however, we are successful in getting a case resolved, what is your advice about making sure you get it all tied up on that day?
0: Having watched other attorneys in this office, I'm glad that I've learned the best strategy once a case settles is to get as many terms and conditions set before you walk out that door. And that means the four corners of the settlement release. What exactly are we agreeing to? Because the worst feeling is once you have a number, you think it's over, your client breathes that sigh of relief, And then the next day you get that email from the defense attorney that contains a release with a whole bunch of stuff that you would never, ever have your client agree to. You don't want to deal with that headache. And so the best thing to do is say, all right, great, we've got the number. This is everything that comes along with that number. And we need to have that in agreement. We need to have that in writing before this mediation is over. And oftentimes what the, the big one that comes up for us is confidentiality, the, the issue of what exactly is my client allowed to talk about? And at least the policy in our office is we make it very clear the terms of the settlement, meaning the actual number, that can remain confidential. But we never let our clients sign a confidentiality release regarding the actual Facts of their case, and and I think that that's really important. And the explanation that we give to our clients is: this is your story. This is your story to tell, as you see fit. There is no reason that these defendants should be able to buy off your silence, with the exception of that number. Get that they don't want that floating around there. But as far as what has actually happened to you and your lived experience, you get to keep that. That is yours. They don't get that's signed away.
2: I've found that the best mediators will suggest that anyway. And once you get to a number, I see it as, you know, kind of, it, it's a bifurcated mediation. Then you start the second phase <laughs> where you go back on those terms. And I think it's really important to put the time into those two and and give that little extra oomph of patience. And I say that because it's very hard for me, but thankfully I'm more stubborn than I am impatient, So it <laughs> ends up, it ends up working out. You won't wear me out. A good thing that it's become our habit to put in those terms is planning for when the payment is made. Depending on your case, it may not matter how quickly the payment is made, but it matters that there's a deadline. So if you're okay getting the check in 30 days, at least there's a deadline that everyone, the expectation is managed with not only your client, but the defense attorney knows what they have to do as well. You can often make that period of time much shorter as part of your negotiating Tactic. And that may come into, if you're accepting an offer at the end, you may want to say, we're going to agree to that number, but we need a check in 10 days in our office. And that's when you have the strength or the position to make that type of negotiation. I would also discuss liens on the case, who is responsible for those, what's known and unknown, I like to handle all the liens myself for my clients. I don't like the defendants to get involved with those because I have a better position to negotiate those. And quite frankly, I work with a much more sense of urgency on those issues because I want to resolve those issues for my clients. and, And that is missing from the defendant's mindset as far as working out those issues for our clients. So that's a couple of the other things I would keep top of mind.
1: I never mind nickel and diamond at the end. If I sense that we're probably gonna get to the main number, I will start peppering in a few additional terms, including paying for the mediation, which could be several thousand dollars, and every penny that the defense pays of my client's expenses is directly going back into my client's pocket because they are responsible for expenses. So I will start asking for them to pay mediation and court costs, which again can be another several thousand dollars. And that usually is accepted because on the whole, it's not that much money, but it is a good way to get a few thousand extra dollars into your client's pockets on confidentiality. Golly y'all. I mean, I fought that for so many years, so many years And it starts out, complete confidentiality, period. And I'm like, okay, so the public lawsuit that is on file based on our open courts doesn't exist anymore? Are you asking for a gag order? And that has been on file for two years. Right, with pleadings filed and answers filed. And, I mean, is that what you're going to do? Are you going to go to the court and get a seal you're going to seal it. And they're like, well, no. I'm like, okay, well then you don't know what you're really asking for. So let's dig into that a little bit. What do you really care about? And a hundred percent of the time it's that Amy Gunn and Mary Simon and Liz Lenovey and Erica Slater don't get to publicize that they've sued somebody and gotten paid. So I learned a long time ago that I can't put my own interest in marketing my success over my clients. So when it comes down to you're at a number and your client's accepting of it, no way am I going to say, oh, well, the deal's off because I don't get to publish it in Missouri Lawyers Weekly. The client just is not accepting of that, nor should she be. But what we still can talk about is the over broad nature of a confidentiality clause. And I say this to my clients, look, if I let you sign this confidentiality clause, this says everything's confidential. You can't talk about anything. Who are you going to be mad at when they threaten to sue you? That would be me. So I don't need that. And, and I don't need you mad at me. So we're going to sit right now and make this as narrow as possible. I will always agree to the amount of the settlement being confidential because my client doesn't want people to know that either. So that's an easy sell. So I start out, my first counter to complete confidentiality is confidentiality is to the amount of the settlement. And then sometimes you end up somewhere in between where we agree not to publicize it. The client can talk to their family and financial advisors. And we ultimately agree that nothing's going to be sealed and that the notion that the case has, quote, resolved or settled can be publicized. So, I mean, that's just one of those things that still gnaws at me because I just don't think it's good public policy for lawsuit settlements to be swept under the rug. And I have never had, knock on wood, I've never had in 20 plus years, any defendant come back on any client complaining of a breach of confidentiality. But technically, it is a term of that contract. It's a term of that release. And I'll tell my clients, your lawsuit against them will be over. But if you blow this confidentiality, they will have a new opportunity to sue you separately for that breach of contract. And so that is a really important I I implore you not to just sign any old confidentiality. And now my favorite part that I see is not just confidentiality, but what?
0: Non disparagement.
1: Non disparagement. Oh. oh yeah. No, non disparagement. Not only can you not talk about your lawsuit, but you don't get to ever say anything bad about Dr. Jones, even though Dr. Jones, you know, is responsible, in our opinion, for the death of your husband. I mean, I lose my mind over that, and I, I consistently say, uh, absolutely not. This last time I checked, we live in the United States of America, and there's a, a right to free speech even though I know know the limits of that. But I can take a pretty strong stand about the non-disparagement nonsense. And I think, again, that is a creation of social media. They don't want our clients to go get all the case settled and then go on and review a doctor and say all these awful things or go on social media and say all these awful things, whether they're true or not. So I understand why they ask for it, but that's a tough sell for me. That's a really tough sell. Erica, when you agreed to mediate, it used to be very common to do a PowerPoint, almost a, a mini opening statement with the room, with all the parties at the table. That has seemed to fallen out of favor the last few years. What's your experience with that?
2: I have had the same experience as you on both the defense side and the plaintiff side. I have used like a kind of opening PowerPoint, if you will. And I don't really do that anymore. And there's two reasons. First of all, if I use it ever, and if I were to use it now, it would really be to highlight maybe two or three things. I would never go through a long drawn out recitation of the facts. I don't think it's an effective tool. However, I do think the meet and greet portion is important. I think it's always good to see everyone who's in the room. I want to look those adjusters in the eyes. I want them to see me. I dress up for mediations. I want them to know who they're dealing with. I take them as seriously as showing up to court. And I think presenting myself and my clients and the other attorneys with us is important. When I get
1: ready for a mediation in the morning, if my kids... they're not around as much anymore in the mornings because they're usually still sleeping. But I will put on a nice dress or a nice suit and I'll say, does mama look like a million bucks today? Because that's what she's going to go get. And they, <laughs> they just, <laughs> they roll their eyes if they're watching me. But I try to make that, because yeah. I try to feel that way. I really think that's, I, I agree with you. I mean, yeah. you know, this room talks about what to wear and how to do your hair and all that stuff all the time. And
2: I think that's an important
1: Point, is that you really do dress for success.
2: That is a day for the three and a half inch heels. Yeah, I stomp sure. around that room Stomping around. with my client and discuss my strategy and, and an just, opportunity to sit down anytime you want. Yes, that right. is so true. Exactly right. Yeah. When we know that we are in a different galaxy than the other side, if we're in a different universe, we may take that opportunity in the mediation to speak directly to the decision makers. Sometimes we don't trust that the our message and what our case is about is getting through the defense attorney filter to their clients. So you do have to think about how that is an opportunity to talk directly to sometimes the defendants and the people who are indemnifying them. And so we've changed when that needs to be done. It's a high stakes case. It's something that we would, you know, put a ton of resources towards to try. And it is appropriate to spend the time and resources to create more of like a video presentation. And we have found that that has been very effective in that scenario because it's not you sitting there narrating a PowerPoint. If you've spent the time to put together a really professional, dynamic presentation, that can have the effect that you may want it to in that room at that time. And it really starts the tone of the mediation. And I never show it to my clients beforehand. It impresses the crap out of them because they know how hard we are working and how put together our strategy is and how put together our litigation is at the point we are, if we're, we've come to mediation. I I agree with that.
3: And Erica, as you were talking, it reminded me of a mediation that I went to, a failed mediation, when you were using the words, we're in different galaxies, right? That just means the mediator almost comes in our room and is like, I don't know what case you're talking about versus what case they're talking about. I didn't know how the information wasn't getting to the person who needed to have the information to make an informed decision on what to pay on this case. And during the first 30 minutes of the mediation, the mediator came back into the room and just looked at me and said, you know, Mary, they just keep telling me that A, B and C things are not true. They're just not true. I know that you have them in that brief that I read. And I I had never met that mediator before, I hadn't used him before, and I just said, "This is such an unfortunate moment for me. You don't know me. You know nothing about me, and I could sit here and try so hard to convince you that I'm not a liar <laughs> or that I'm not lying to you. If you could just give me 10 minutes, I'm going to go use their printer and I'm going to print out a couple documents to show you what I'm to show you what I'm talking about." And he said, No problem. I understand. I'm not trying to, you know, aggravate you. And I was like, I just, something like this is just aggravating me in my core. I just need to show it to you. He came back in the room. I showed him the records that I had referenced. And he went, Okay, well, I think you should just go home. If they can't agree to facts. then you should probably just go home. And I do thank you so much for your time. Maybe in the future I'll get to work with you again, but have a nice day. And I drove, you know, the multiple hour drive home. And, and and it and it is what it is. So I think you're exactly right, Erica, that oftentimes it it's not really worth the effort to just put together, you know, a PowerPoint of facts. It's not really the right time or place. But if you know what your case is worth and, and you know that certain pieces of information have just not been relayed to the person who needs to see them, then it is worth the time and energy to put that together for your client's benefit and to make it worthwhile.
2: Or to make sure that you, I always kind of have a mediation binder with maybe my key documents and my mediation brief and things like that. I always keep that hard evidence that I know might come up, whether it's sometimes it's, it's a deposition transcript of the defendant. I bring my highlighted copy. And if I hear messages coming out of the other room that, you know, that's not, that fact isn't true. And I say, well, here's the page with the testimony on it. And I've been in multiple mediations where the mediator says, can I borrow that page real quick? And I said,
3: yeah, here's
2: the the highlighted one, (laughs) Right. (laughs) you know, and and that I can think of at least one case where that exact move got it done cuz the defendant was trying to deny something they were immediately faced with it in black and white print and then they lost their credibility and ended up paying a lot of money
0: can i ask a question of course so in my experience mediators tend to be pretty friendly towards my client i think that they recognize that the types of clients we have, these are very sensitive issues, whether it's a death case or if it's a medical malpractice case or a trucking or car accident case, someone is suffering in some way or has suffered. And so they try to be gentle with the client. But I'm thinking of one case in particular where the mediator was, I thought, a little abrasive with my client and pushing her around just a bit basically telling her to her face, your case is never going to be worth that much. We need to be realistic. And and I don't think that that's the mediator's place to have that conversation with any of the parties. I think that that is the attorney's job. The mediator is just there to facilitate discussion and go back and forth. But I was sort of at a loss of how to address this. And so I, I did the whole like you described Mary where I said, No, Your Honor, this is because this was a retired judge. This is what the evidence shows. I would pull up the depositions, and then she and I were kind of getting into it a little bit. And then she would step out and, and I had to have a talk with my client about don't worry about what she says. This is what you and I need to talk about and and, and I'm gonna be straight with you and this is how we're gonna get through this. And that was a failed mediation. I don't know if bullying is too harsh of a word, but maybe just taking it a step too far with your client. What is the advice you would give to, to attorneys who are experiencing that? It's a
1: little awkward, and that surprises me a little bit. But your client has to know that you are there to protect them. And the mediator sounds like, to me, was just having a hard time not being in charge. In other words not being a facilitator but actually being in control of each room who knows what was going on in the other room i may have already told this story in a different context but i had a mid missouri case and the mediator was a what i would consider to be an older gentleman who just didn't he came in and bullied tried to bully me tried to bully my clients and i was like this is not happening he was pointing out that I was a woman trying to try a case in mid-Missouri, and he wasn't sure how well that would play. And I'm like, are you kidding me? And luckily, I had the presence of mind to have a, have a separate discussion with my clients and, and say, look, this is unusual. That guy's not going to tell me what your case is worth. But it was just a terrible place to have to be. And I'll never forget that. But I think... The bottom line is you have to use that opportunity to garner some trust and some camaraderie with your client and say, you know what, this is the way it is. It's us versus them. It always has been. It always will be. We're not going to take this. We're out of here. And if I recall that, that's exactly what happened. We were like, this is not working for us. All right, ladies, we're going to do some takeaways on mediating cases. I will start. And mine is... I need to remember each and every time I mediate that no one can tell me what my client's case is worth except for me and my client, no matter how the negotiations are going, no matter what the mediator says, no matter what numbers are coming from the other rooms. When I walk into a mediation, I do and should know what the value of that settlement is, and. Really just stand strong about what what that number is and how I advise my client.
2: Erica. Mine is similar because I think that I always have to tell myself to remain patient. And you can kind of relax if you are confident and in control of where you know you want to end. And then it's either you get there or you don't. And you can settle or you won't. <laughs> and, and if you've prepared your client right, each ending is equally possible. So I would say to remember to be patient, have confidence in your position, stick to it if your client agrees. And then just that added extra time, take the extra time to hammer out the rest of the terms in the settlement agreement. It's easy to be just exhausted and ready to get out of there, but the extra time will pay off.
0: Liz, what's your takeaway? My takeaway is to come prepared. Obviously, we've talked a lot about preparing your client, but you yourself need to make sure that you have every piece of paper ready. You know that case inside and out. It's almost like getting ready for trial a bit. You need to know all of the depositions. You need to know every piece of evidence because there might come a moment, like you described, Erica, where you need to whip something out of a deposition to show why your case is as strong as it is. And maybe that one line in that deposition is going to get the case done that day. Just make sure you're ready.
3: Mary. My biggest takeaway from this is I think it's really important to tell your client that it's not a bad thing to leave mediation. And at the end of the day, you're going to leave the mediation in a better position with more knowledge than you did prior
1: Thank you, everyone, for joining us today uh, for our discussion on mediating cases. If you have comments, concerns, would like to talk to us about anything, go to heelsinthecourtroom.law. Also, we can all be reached at the Simon Law Firm's website.
0: So we'd love to hear from you.
1: Thank you and see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.
0: Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Heels in the Courtroom. Amy, Liz, Erica, Mary, Elizabeth, and Megan would love to hear from you. Send your thoughts to comments at heelsinthecourtroom.law and subscribe today.